The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. You know, it seems like in the last, I don't know, several years, certainly the last decade, that everywhere you turn, there's a different and kind of new makeover show going on, right? There's, they're making over this, they're making over that. I think some of the first ones were, were the, the making over someone's house, right? So they would find someone who often it was a case of, you know, they had a difficult situation or a diagnosis that they had in the family and, and the house didn't sit right. And so you remember in, in those shows, they like take the family awake, they completely renovate the house and they come back and you're like blown away. You're like, can they come to my house next? You know, or, or in, in some of them, it's, you know, they find someone who used to be cool in the seventies and they still dress like it, you know, even though that's 50 years ago, you know, and they're like, Hey, this person needs some help. They don't really know how to dress themselves. Right. And so, so someone shows up and helps them get a haircut and these are how clothes should fit. And, and these are the colors you should wear. And the kind of, is this transformation? Others are maybe weight loss shows, right? you find someone and you and you join them on their health journey as they move towards weight loss and health over a period of months or years but there's one similarity between every makeover show whether it's a house or a person or fashion or whatever it is and that's at the end of the show at the end of the episode or if it's a whole season of this at the end of the season before the kind of unveiling of the final thing what do you always have you have the before shot They go back and everyone has the before and the after shot right at the end, right? They show you, this is what the house used to look like. This is how this person used to dress. Now, look at them now, right? Because when we see that after and when we recognize what that person or what that house looked like before, the contrast stands out and we see the amazing work, the amazing transformation that's gone on for that person. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see the amazing before and after shot of every single one of us who are followers of Jesus. This passage gives us a picture of what our lives are like before him, apart from him, and a glimpse into what it is like now, now that we are followers of Jesus, or for anyone who is in the before, what your life could look like if you were to place your faith in Jesus. And there's one thing that ties these passages together, that ties this paragraph together, and it's a theme that flows throughout a word repeated a few times and a concept repeated multiple times, and that's this idea of grace. Grace. Grace is something that God gives to us. And this passage today in Ephesians looks at three reasons that God's grace is so amazing. Three reasons that God's grace is so amazing. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 2? Um, Ephesians chapter 2, it's also in the, the handout you received. Now, Scripture is one of our core values here at Morgan Hill Bible Church. It's God's truth on which we stand on and live our lives by. And God's word, the Bible, is entirely inspired by him. Every single passage of of scripture, every word is inspired by him. But there's certain passages that if you've walked with God for a long time or you've read through your Bible for, there's certain passages that just kind of stand out right? They leave an imprint on you. And this paragraph that we're going to look at today, I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that if I had to pick one paragraph 
to spend the rest of my life reading and studying. If I had to pick one paragraph that I had to preach on it every Sunday for the rest of my life, don't worry, that's not the case. We'll move to the next one next week. But if there was just one paragraph, for me, I would pick this passage. I think it does such a good job of every passage in scripture of culminating what God has done for us in Jesus. And there are such riches in it. Don't worry, you still have a 1030 service today, so I can't talk forever. You're like, that's why we came to the first one, because he can't go long, because there's another service still to come later today. Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse one, says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." See, the first reason that this passage shows us, the first reason that God's grace is so amazing is that grace shows us our profound need. Grace shows us our profound need for God. This passage, there's, there's always that dilemma, right? If you have someone, you're like, I have good news or I have bad news. And that's kind of Paul comes to, the, to this argument in the letter. He's like, I got new, good news and bad news. I'm gonna start with the bad And he gives us the bad news in this series of phrases over and over. And it's like a boxer just hitting body blows to a person over and over again. He's saying, this is what our life is like apart from Jesus. Just as he has done before and will continue to do the beginning of his letter, the you here that he's talking about is about Gentile Christians, but he's not specifically calling out Gentile Christians and their sin because then he includes everyone, including those who are born Jewish amongst them in verse three, among whom we all. He's saying this is the state of humanity of every single person born into the world apart from Jesus. And he highlights three negative influences on our lives that separate us from God. Three different things that ultimately cause this separation that demonstrates our profound need for him. This first negative influence on our life is simply the world in which we live. Notice he says that we follow the course of this world. The world there is not meant just to talk about like, oh, this big planet that we live on, but the world is often used in a negative way to speak of humanity in rebellion against God. And he's saying that, that the, the very society and the places in which we live are influenced in us. And so our behavior is influenced by the attitudes, the habits and the preferences of the fallen and broken world, the sinful world that we see around us. See, it's a concern I think of every single believer who looks around and says, man, this world is kind of screwed up, right? I know we've all felt that. Oh, man, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to move to Texas because there's no problem. No, no, that's not, that's not the solution, right? Like, then guess what? Guess what happens when people move to Texas? They go, man, this world's screwed up still here. You know, it's screwed up wherever you go. And the world, the worldly influence is on us. This is not a new problem to look around us and see, wow, this is messed up. Paul is doing this 2,000 years ago. He's saying, man, look at the world. It's messed up. This is a problem, a tension that Christians have faced for millennium, for generations, to see the influence of the world on us and seeing how that's negative and leads us astray from God. But the world is not the only influence on our lives. Second is the devil himself is a negative influence on non-believers. Look at that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
See, it was very real to them that our reality is not just a physical reality. This goes against our Western mindset, right? Of everything that exists is only the physical, the seen. But he talks about this spiritual battle. Last week, he emphasized that Jesus is supreme over these powers. Later on in the book, he's gonna talk about how important it is as Christians to recognize the battle in which we are living. But that, that we are living in this spiritual battle. Now, he's not saying that anyone who's not a Christian is like possessed by some evil spirit or has demonic possession. That's not what he's saying, but he is saying that we shouldn't minimize the impact that the evil one has over those who are led astray from God in our worlds, that they are being actively led astray by Satan. But not only that, the third influence is our very own self, our flesh. Notice we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The flesh here doesn't refer to so much our physical self, but our fallen, self-centered human nature. It refers to humanity in rebellion against God. And so where, where has this gotten us? Where are these influences that we've followed? Where has this gotten us? Well, it's, it's kind of two things, and he starts with it, and he ends with it. He hits us up front with like a, a right-hand hook right to the face there to start us off with where sin gets us. Look at verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So where has our sin gotten us? Our sin has gotten us to be spiritually dead before God. This speaks of our alienation and separation from him. That because we were born into sin and have committed acts of sin, by saying trespasses and sins, he's referring here to both flagrant acts of sin that we do and sinful acts that we do in our lives and we don't even do it intentionally because we are just born into sin and sin is a part of our existence, that we live into it. We have a sinful nature. And because of it, we are separated from God. And a spiritually dead person on their own human efforts cannot make themselves back alive. Right? As a pastor, I've officiated several funerals before, and there are interesting things. And, you know, obviously when grief comes upon a family, sometimes there's tension and there's a lot of exhaustion and there's a lot of emotion. And so you're always trying to help care and comfort people when at a funeral. There's one thing I've never worried about officiating a funeral, the person getting up out of the casket. I don't have to worry about it. Why? Because they're dead. They're not gonna misbehave. They no longer are here. They are dead. And you're not worried about that person coming back to life because someone who's dead can't help themselves. They are done. That is our spiritual status apart from Jesus. See, what is needed on our behalf is not more effort because we're not sick. We're not, we're not, oh, we're, we're going down the wrong way. No, we are dead in our sin. And on our own, we are utterly incapable of dealing with it. And notice, because we are deserving of sin, notice how he finishes in verse three. We were by nature, all of us, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That we were deserving of God's wrath on us because of our sin. Wrath is God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that results from it. See, God is a God who, yes, is love, but he is holy and loving. And God cannot sit idly by and leave sin unpunished. He cannot just sit by in the face of wickedness and not do something about it. And so because of that, we were deserving of wrath because of where our sin has gotten us. Now I realize, especially if you're new and just checking out church, this is not a very popular message in our world today. It's not popular in our world to talk of sin, 
right? We even, we, we use different phrases in our own lives to help us. Even as Christians, we, we use different phrases to help water down and feel better, right? We don't have sin. We have issues or we have struggles. We have baggage. We have problems. And the answer is yes, you do. And it's all referred to one word in the Bible as sin. See, we try and water it down, but you can't help self-help yourself out of your sin problem because we are dead in it. And so I realize that for many, this is difficult to hear and it's unpopular in our day, but it's actually unloving not to help someone to see the condition in which they find themselves if it's an unhealthy place. And so the Bible helps us see our own spiritual condition apart from him in hopes that we will recognize it and be moved to do something about it. Many years ago, um, at the church which I previously worked, there was a, a lady who was a very regular attender at our church. And she was one of those people who as a pastor, I just loved seeing on Sundays because she was such an encourager, right? And as a pastor, if you know someone's always gonna be kind and uplifting and pray free, like that's the person you always wanna find on a Sunday, right? Like I wanna say hi to them because they're always gonna be nice. They never have a problem, a complaint they never need. They just are always, and that was, that was this lady. And she lived a difficult life. Um, she often was in between shelters and, and looking for, for housing. And so there was a, a period where there began to be a little certain odor about her. And I didn't think anything of it because for some people who don't have access or living in a home, that's a normal thing. But being a youth pastor for over a decade, I'm kind of an expert in body odor amongst many other things. You, you sleep in a junior high cabin enough, like you, you get it, right? And so, so a few of us began to be like, man, there, there is something concerning about this. And we began to talk to her as we noticed there was open wounds on her legs and there was looked, what looked like from our very non-medical expertise, like that's, that's bad, that's really bad. And a few of us went and we eventually found and talked to her and, and she's, oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine, there's, there's no issue going on. I'm, I'm doing perfectly fine. And she had become blind just because she couldn't see her own needs. She couldn't see where she was at. She couldn't smell the stench that was coming off from the infection on her. It got so much so that we were so concerned that we actually had to bring a doctor from our church and, and he helped see her. Listen, you have to go to the hospital today. We're bringing a car right now to take. And the doctor said that if she hadn't been brought in, she might have lost her leg. But she didn't even see it. She was blind to her own condition. And it's not, and that's awkward, right? To go up to someone in church and be like, hey, are you okay? You kind of smell bad. Like, you know, like, how, how do you do that in a way that that's awkward, right? But we said, no, th this is important enough because this, your life is at risk. Something bad could happen if no one confronts you. And it's awkward to be up here and say, hey, guess what? You're sinners. You're in rebellion against God. You have issues, but that's the case of every single one of us. And you might be saying, well, there you Christians go, talking about how bad everyone else is. This is typical Christianity. That's not at all what I'm trying to say, because this is true of every single one of us. That for every one of us who, were, who are Christians now, before Jesus came in, this is where our status was. And we are not judging anyone, but we as followers of Jesus need to sit and marvel at who we once were and where we would be if it were not for the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. See, we need to be reminded again of our sinful selves and what Jesus has saved us from. Because a shallow view of sin leads to a shallow view of salvation, which leads to a shallow view of our Savior. 
And we cannot worship Jesus well. We cannot understand our salvation well until we understand the sin in which we are saved from. And so grace shows us this profound need that we have in our lives. So he starts with the bad news, but he quickly changes tone. Verse four, gets onto the good news. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. See, the second reason grace is so amazing is grace brings profound change. Grace brings profound change in our lives. And notice the agent, how it all changes in the passage. It's brought about by God. This is one of those best phrases in scripture that when you see it, you should underline it, you should circle it because something is about to change. When that little two word phrase, three letters each shows up in your Bible, happens over and over and over again. It's going one way, it's going one way, but God, but God, he did something about it. He has done something about our spiritual state, but God, and we get two characteristics of this God right away, who is rich in mercy and greatly loving us. He's rich in mercy. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And he is moved by his great love with which he loved us. Notice, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God doesn't love us because of our own human efforts to get ourselves together. God doesn't love us because of the face that we put on on a Sunday when we show up to church and we're gonna act like, oh, now, now I'm, I'm a good looking Christian. I've got my life put together. No, this is, this is me. God doesn't love us for anything else other than the fact that he is God and he expresses his love freely toward us. As the book of Romans says that even when we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love, that even when we were sinners, he died for us. It's the foundational thing that God is rich in mercy and great in love. And so what is the change that God's grace brings? What, what change does it make in our lives? There's two things that kind of contrast with where we were before. The first verb that would define our status before was you were dead in your sin. But notice in verse five, he has made us alive. We have been brought to life. We've been made alive. This is the central verb in this whole passage is that we are alive, but notice we have been made alive together with Christ. We were dead and now we are alive because we share in that same life that Jesus himself has had because he was dead and rose from the dead. And that resurrection life that he has, we can now have if we are together with him. We looked last week, if you were with us, at God demonstrating his awesome power by raising Jesus from the dead. And what Paul is saying is, guess what? He demonstrates his power by raising each of us from the dead as well. We may not have been physically dead, but we were dead in our sin, incapable of doing anything about it. And it's God's power that moves us and makes us alive with him. So not only have we been made alive, but look at where we now, our status now, it says that we are raised and seated with Christ. That we've been raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. 
Last week, we talked about how this being seated and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father shows a completion to his work. There's nothing more to be done. And it's a sign of power and status of where the most important person would sit. And because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and we are raised and seated with him, we are now in a position of honor and authority and favor because of what Jesus has done for us. Remember, we are now seated with Jesus and notice what God wants for us in the future. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, looking forward to eternity, what will heaven be like? In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. We were deserving of wrath. Now we will receive the immeasurable riches of God expressed to us in his grace by showing us kindness in Jesus Christ. Rather than facing God's wrath, we face his eternal kindness. The same word, this this immeasurable riches of his grace, that word immeasurable is the same word that was just used to describe the power of God that cannot be measured or contained. He's saying what God has overflowing for you in the future cannot even be described. The riches are beyond. They are immeasurable are the riches of what we have coming for us because we are united to Jesus. And notice the foundation to it all. The phrase right in the middle there in verse five, by grace, you have been saved. By grace. The foundation to what God does in our lives is his grace. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God in our lives. It's unmerited. You don't deserve God's grace. You can't work enough on yourself to get God's grace. See, sometimes someone might say, well, I want to come to Jesus, but let me get my life together first, and then I'll come to him like somehow we'll be better prepared. Or I don't deserve it. Let me do some deeds. Let me go feed the homeless. Let me do something good so I feel like I'm more deserving of what God has for me. No, grace is always unmerited and undeserved. And grace is what we all desperately want in our time of need, isn't it? When you oversleep your alarm and you show up to work an hour late, what do you really hope your boss gives you? Some grace. When you forgot the paper was due and you email your professor last minute, what are you really hoping that they'll give you? Some grace. When you've messed up again and mom or dad said not to do that and you did that anyways and you got caught, what are you really hoping to get from mom or dad? You're hoping to get some grace. See, whenever we understand that we've made a mistake, it's my fault, we we don't say, listen, I messed up. I don't deserve it, but will you extend me grace? And the answer from God towards us, and we come to him and say, God, I've messed up. I recognize my wrongs. I see my sin. Will you give me grace? God's answer is always yes. 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 It is always yes. Yes, See, these verses set so close together show this contrast. It shows this rags to riches story that's true of everyone who's in Jesus. We love in our world today in America, we love a good rags to riches story, don't we? Of someone who came from nothing and then through their work and through their success now has something. I think one of the most um, best examples that I could think of this week as I was reflecting on it is the story of Chris Gardner who was a man who in his young 20s was homeless here in San Francisco while he was interning. His son and him would go from shelter to shelter, even living at times and spending the night in a bathroom in the BART station, just trying to get by. 
until eventually he was able to get a job and succeed. And today, Chris Gardner, about 30 years later, is worth $70 million. He bought a Ferrari from Michael Jordan. And the reason that story is so amazing is because of where he came from. If it sounds familiar, it's the movie Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith that kind of fictionalizes, but based off of his life story. And it's so powerful because he's not just someone who's successful. We recognize the nothingness with which his life was and how he now has something. See, every Christian goes from a rags, a nothing, a a homeless, a wandering to this amazing riches story. But here's the difference. It's not because of our own efforts. It's not because we worked hard enough and stuck it out and kept pursuing. It's not because of us. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. His grace has saved us. His grace is what changes us. It's not deserved. It's not merited. It's all from him. Verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the third reason that grace is so amazing is grace enables profound living. Grace enables, grace empowers us to have a profound life, to live for Jesus in a certain way. So how does, how does grace practically change our lives today? What difference does it make in the life of the follower of Jesus? Because God has poured his grace out. How are we different today? The first thing that God's grace, the first difference it makes is it gives us a great purpose. It gives us a purpose. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea of that we are his workmanship, that's the same word which we get our word poem for. It's something that's thoughtfully crafted and pieced together that God has created for a specific purpose. That you and I are saved. We are created by God before the foundation world for good works. Now, if you have read your Bible or you've been in church for a while, you know that there is often sometimes this tension in what Paul talks about in the author of this book about salvation and what comes later on in the New Testament in the book of James. Because Paul here emphasizes that we are saved by grace. It's not by works. He says that very clearly. And James comes along and he says, faith without works is dead. And sometimes people try and put these things together. Like, well, which is right? Is it Paul or is it James? What are they saying? Well, here's the thing. They're both saying the same thing. Because Paul emphasizes here that if your life has been changed by the grace of God, it is impossible for you to live the same way. It is impossible for someone who has been moved from death to life, who's been moved from facing God's wrath to facing God's kindness for their life not to be different. If your life isn't different, he's saying you haven't actually gotten that change but we were created for good works, that the goodness of our lives may overwhelm. Now, here's the thing that we have to get that Paul makes sure to emphasize. It's the works that we do for Jesus are never the grounds of our salvation, but it's the goal of our salvation. It's never the grounds. It's not that God sees the works we do and says, okay, now you're good enough, but it's the outcome of what God has already done in our lives, that our lives overflow because of what Jesus has done for us. See, if we're followers of Jesus, our lives 
must demonstrate the reality of God's grace. Our lives must demonstrate the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. It matters, brothers and sisters, it matters how we live. It really does. It matters how you act towards your family, how you are at your job, how you are with your friends. It matters how we live our lives because we were created not just for God to save us and then for us to live however we want. We were created to do good works. We are God's workmanship. Each of us have a part in that. And so we're given this purpose by God that we're created to demonstrate our good works, to show that the grace of God has been on display in our lives. The grace of God also enables us to have humility in our lives. Notice that phrase at the end of verse nine, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. So you can have such a profound humility in your life when you recognize what God has done for you in Jesus. Because you say, I don't deserve it. It wasn't my own effort. And so when you recognize what God has done for you, it takes away all pride from your life and it chisels it away. See, we are such prideful people and the best solution towards fighting pride in our lives as followers of Jesus is to remember what Jesus has done for us. Because as we see the cross, as we see the empty tomb, we recognize that that was our punishment. We deserve to be there, but by God's grace, we weren't. And it's our humility that can flow from that because we can't boast about our salvation because it has nothing to do with our own works. Not only can we have humility, we can have confidence about our salvation as well. Because we are saved, he puts it there in verse eight, one of the most well-known phrases and passages in the Bible. We are saved by grace through faith. He uses three parallel phrases then to reinforce this idea of grace. You can get this idea that like he wants to make sure that they get it. You're saved by grace. And if you didn't understand what that means, he says this, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. You don't deserve this. It's not your own doing. The second thing, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. It's not a payment. It's not some wages that he owes you. It's a free gift of his. He doesn't have to give it to you. It's a gift of God. And in case they didn't get it again, verse nine, it's not a result of works. Three phrases back to back to back to make sure they get that this grace is entirely undeserved, entirely freely flowing from Jesus's life towards us. And since we are saved by God's grace and not by our own works, it gives us peace and confidence in our salvation even when we make mistakes. So your goal is to represent Christ, to be his workmanship for good works, but we struggle with sin on this side of eternity. Every single one of us do. We probably haven't sinned, well, I don't wanna say how many long, maybe in the last five minutes, certainly today. Right, we, we all fall short each and every day. But when we recognize that we are saved by grace, it's not a result of our works, we can live with a confidence before God because we don't have to get to the end of the day and start to tremble and say, what if I did something today that caused me to lose my salvation? What if I did something so bad that God's grace is no longer in my life? Because if your salvation is not something you've earned, it's not something that you can lose. But if salvation is something that God gives you, it's his to give and his to take away. And he promises that he never will for those who are his children. If it's not something we earn, it's not something that we can lose. See, grace can be difficult for us to receive sometimes. Grace can be difficult in our world for us to receive. 
And I think there's kind of two reasons. And in my experience, often these kind of fall into two groups of people. Um, maybe you're kind of in between or you feel a little bit of both. That's okay. But I know for me on one of these things, I strongly feel that this is the, the pattern of my heart and why it's easy for me to push back against God's grace in my life. I think one attitude, and this is where I fall into my natural bent of why it's hard for me to receive grace is I feel like I have to do something to attain it. I feel like it, I have to do something to attain it. He, he can't give me something and me not do it, right? This is true of us who, who would be like, that, that can't be true that God would do something for me. There's something I have to do. He would only pay me back for what I would do. Maybe in your world, you've just had this idea. Maybe you're, you're kind of a type A, you're driven, you're always pushing the next thing. You're seen by other people as working hard and you would say, hey, I'm a hardworking person. I succeed with my own work and I'm gonna do it the same way before God. Friends, we can't work to our own salvation. There's nothing that we contribute to it. Apart from Jesus, we are dead. What we need is new life brought about from him. See, so some of us feel like we can't receive it because it's something that we would have to work for in our own lives. But then on the other side, there's people who feel like they can't receive God's grace because they say, if you only knew the things that I've done in my life. You say God forgives trespasses and sins. Sure, but what about what I've done? Because I guarantee it's worse than the person sitting next to me. That God, 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 okay, God, God's love and he's grace. Sure, sure, for you, you're a pastor. Yeah, okay, all the bad things you've done, right? Like, come on, but look at my life. How, how could God forgive me? You don't know what I've done. And you're right, I don't know. I don't know what you've done. The guy who writes this book, though, is speaking from experience here. Because before he was a Christian, he was going around locking up and murdering Christians. That's what he was doing. And I'm still new here. I've only been here for a few months, but I've gotten a chance to sit down over coffee and breakfast and lunch with many people and hear your stories of where God's brought you from. And if you're here this morning thinking God could never save me because of what I've done in my life, I want you to know you're sitting around people that God saved out of every imaginable circumstance of your life. He saved them out of prison, out of addiction, out of divorce, out of drugs, Every single issue you can imagine, there's someone sitting here today that God pulled them from that and his grace came into their lives and their low pit and transformed them. See, there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your life. And it doesn't matter how much sin or how bad you may think your sin is, there is always more grace in God's heart than there is sin in our lives. I'm gonna invite the band up as we close here in a moment. And as we, as we close, I want us to look at this final phrase in this passage in verse eight. It says that this, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not your undoing. It is the gift of God, the gift of God. I don't know about you. Maybe it's because I'm still like a little kid, a little too much, but I love Christmas because you get gifts, right? I mean, like Thanksgiving's great, the football and the stuff, but, but man, gifts, gifts are great. And I, maybe there's still that little bit in me that is like so much selfish. I want people to give me things. I want gifts. And God offers every single person this gift. But here's the thing about Christmas gifts as Christmas season is coming up soon, right? It's already October. Is that if your house is like mine, the tree will go up right around Thanksgiving or maybe shortly after, 
and gifts will start to appear and sit underneath the tree, right? And they'll be there for days, weeks. And if you're bored and you put up your tree this week, they'll be there for months, maybe even. They'll be there and a gift is there. A gift has been offered. But when does the gift become realized? When is the joy seen in the gifts? It's on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve if you cheat and you go a night early, but that's okay. It's on Christmas morning where that gift is received by the other person and it's open and the joy flows because the gift has not just been offered, but someone has received it. See, we are saved by grace and the response that God asks from us is through faith. All God asks is this, that, hey, I have given you this gift. You deserved sin and death and punishment and separation from me forever. And as bad as you are, I give you this gift of Jesus, of a transformed life, of a transformed heart. And all he's asking from us is to receive it, that we would believe in faith of what God has done for us in Jesus. So as we close, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? Because I wanna pray for, for us this morning and I wanna pray specifically for you if you're wandering here from God and you're not sure where you stand with him. God's grace is here. He offers it freely. And his call for us is simply to respond in faith. And so if today you have sensed in your hearts that I am a sinner, I'm separated from God, but I want to receive his grace today. I wanna pray for you right now as we close. So if that's true of you, would you just quickly slip up your hand so I can see you and pray for you as we wrap up our time together. Amen, amen. Anyone else go ahead and take a moment and raise your hand before we pray. Amen, amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Jesus, for what he's done in our lives. And if this morning you raised your hand and maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you want that grace, would you just pray this prayer along with me, expressing your heart to God? You can put it in your own words if you want. The God, we thank you for Jesus. We recognize that we are sinners that your love for us is not because of what we've done. But God, we, we need your grace. And God, today we place our faith in you. God, we wanna receive that gift of salvation that you offer us. So God, would you extend your grace as you promised you would? God, would you change our lives, we pray. God, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, may we never cease to stand in amazement at how gracious your heart is towards us and the change that you have made in our lives. May today we remember again the difference that Jesus makes. We praise you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.